Well, good morning. It's a joy to see you all this morning, and I'm excited to be here, and I recognize that uh, there's a few people that will probably be showing up here in just a little bit. Uh, with the time change, it, it knocks everyone out, I believe. Um, I, I believe there are a few things left in this world uh, that are clearly of Satan. That might be one of them. I'm not completely sure, though. I don't know about you, but I like a good uh, superhero movie. Anyone with me there? All right, maybe it's not superheroes for you. I grew up on westerns. How many people can I catch like a good western? It doesn't even have to be good. Do you like a western? All right. Uh, I realized something as I was thinking through it that I realized that the plot of superhero mo- most superhero movies and most westerns is about the same. There's a good guy or a bunch of go- good guys and a bad guy or a bunch of bad guys and there's this tension between them, the bad guys oppressing the people, and the good guy comes in to save the day. And I always liked the Westerns for this. You always knew who the good and bad guys were. Black hats or white hats. This was so easy. I learned this as a kid. I'm like, white hat, he's the good guy, right? And I learned that. I always thought the fashion sense of the bad guys was better, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. Um, the thing is, I, I, that may be a simplistic view of all Westerns, and superhero movies, but there's something about the story of good guys versus bad guys for the sake of the masses. We like that kind of story, and every one of those stories seems to end with this epic showdown whenever they're, they're shooting at each other, and we're not sure who's going to win or whatever's going on, and you're like, yes, that's what we've been waiting for. The whole idea of a, of a showdown is, uh, I, it's all throughout movies, it's all throughout history as well. Have you ever really considered that? A lot of our history has these showdowns. I, I, I'll name a few from sports worlds and, and from our history, even in America, American history. First one that comes to mind is uh, 1980, um, the Winter Olympics. U.S. men's hockey. Remember the two teams? USA versus Russia. They've made some movies about this as well, but man, epic showdown. Yeah, all the hype building into that, there's just a lot going on. Another one that happened uh, was the Thrilla in Manila. You remember that one? Whenever the great Muhammad Ali was facing off in the, in the ring against the grill maker George Foreman. Okay, he later became the grill maker, I'm sorry, but you know, that one, big epic thing. Uh, Maybe in Texas I can remember a showdown that all of us should remember. You remember the Alamo? Yeah, that's that's a showdown. That's something big. Or uh, one that's made more popular recently, I I was actually looking up of some of the famous uh, showdowns throughout history, and uh, number one on the list was Alexander Hamilton duel to Aaron Burr, because he is, you know, not going to waste his shot. He's not going to waste a shot. I won't continue quoting Hamilton for you, but uh, the whole idea is that those stories, they're, they're memorable for a reason, because an epic showdown sticks with you. This morning, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up where I left off last week, and I'm going to get the background of one of, I believe, the biggest showdowns in all of Scripture, and it happens with a prophet 
named Elijah. Now, Elijah shows up on the scene in Acts, uh, sorry, in 1 Kings 17 with really no introduction except he's from this place. We know very little about Elijah. All we know is that he comes from a place and then he has a message from the Lord. He delivers his message to King Ahab that says, hey, it's not going to rain or even do until I give the word. And then Elijah skedaddles. He goes and hides by the brook and that brook dries up and he goes and hides with the widow of Zarephath. We talked about that last week. He hides until the Lord calls him back to confront this King Ahab. So that's the background of what's going on, is Israel has been in a drought for three years. It's not fun. That, that, that is not a place to be. The economy is struggling. The people are all looking for someone to blame, and it's very clear who Ahab wants to blame. In fact, as the scripture goes, it seems like Elijah is a wanted man. He's wanted by Ahab. He wants him to reverse this curse that Elijah has brought upon the land. So as chapter 18 begins, God calls Elijah, hey, go and present yourself again to Ahab. Kind of sounds like a death warrant. Elijah doesn't, doesn't even hesitate. All right, send me. Let's go. Whenever he finally knocks on the door, as it were, with King Ahab, Ahab sees him and he says this. So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Now that word, whenever we talk about troublemakers, we can talk about, you know, little boys or little troublemakers, and it's kind of a cute term. In their day and age, that would not be a cute term. This is a pretty harsh term, saying you're a troublemaker of Israel. Now this is really ironic because Scripture has gone through some wonderful links to tell us the backstory. In chapter 16, we find out that King Ahab is not just a bad king, he is the worst king Israel has ever had up to that point, and I would venture to say beyond that point. He married the worst woman that anyone could imagine. They are the royal couple leading Israel down the tube. And he has the audacity to point to a guy that just shows up out of nowhere, says, you know what, because of where you have led this nation, God's judgment is upon you. It's not going to rain. And he has the audacity to blame that guy for the problems. You're the troublemaker. Well, Elijah doesn't hesitate one bit. He says, I have made no trouble for Israel. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Elijah is not threatened whatsoever by the strongest, most powerful man in the land. That's a great message for us. Elijah is not from around here. He's from Tishbe. Elijah doesn't have a place at the royal table. But he has no fear because he knows who's with him. And that's going to be the theme throughout the rest of the story. Elijah knows who's, who is on his side, or more, more so, whose side he is on. And it doesn't matter what the odds are. God is with me, no problem. So Elijah doesn't back down to this, and he has no problem standing up to the king. But more than that, Elijah then proposes a showdown of the gods. He's saying, you know what? For a long time now, you have been trying to follow other gods as if they were something. 
let's prove it. Let's put your money where your mouth is. Let's prove it. Let's have a showdown. And so Elijah proposes, and he tells King Ahab, he says, hey, bring all the people of Israel together to Mount Carmel. Call upon all the prophets of Baal, which we find out is 450, and then all the prophets of Asherah, which are connected to Jezebel, his wife, uh, which is 400. Call together all the prophets, and we're going to have a showdown. This is, this is an ultimate winner-takes-all kind of thing here. Elijah's proposing the ultimate God showdown. Ahab's like, yeah, no problem. Let's do this. The place is Mount Carmel. It's kind of on the northern side, uh, on the coastal region of, uh, of Israel. Has, uh, from what I understand, on clear day, you can see the coast. Great place for a lot of people to gather. Not a particularly high mountain, but a lot of people can gather there. He says, bring all the prophets. The rules are, all you prophets and myself, we get an altar, we get wood, we get a sacrifice, and a prayer. And whichever God answers the prayer and sends fire to light the altar for the sacrifice, that is the true God. I don't know fully what's going on through uh, their minds. They all agree with this. Maybe they thought more highly of Baal than I do, but that's what's going on here is the prophets of Baal start first. And so what you have is they pick this bull and they prepare the worship service, as it were, to Baal. And they place the bull on the altar that they have created, and then 450 prophets of Baal are are wailing, are chanting, are praying, are even cutting themselves in their worship to Baal, pleading with him to show this outsider who the real God is. And then nothing happens. My favorite part of the story is, comes about noon. It says this, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. He's bold. 450 of them. And he starts saying, you'll have to shout louder, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming, or maybe he's relieving himself, or maybe he's away on a trip, or he's asleep and needs to be wakened. This guy, he's got some boldness. He's mocking all of these prophets. And so they do exactly what Elijah says. They wail louder. They scream to their God. They're trying to get him to do anything to send the fire. But nothing happens. Now about the time of the evening sacrifice... I don't know how you picture this, but I picture Eli just, just all of a sudden talking to the crowd and said, come here for a bit. He heads over and he repairs the altar of the Lord. Scripture makes it clear that he repairs this. In other words, it has been in disrepair. He repairs the altar of the Lord, which means he sets up 12 stones. That should have some significance for us because there are 12 tribes of Israel. It definitely has significance for the Israelites. He sets up the 12 stones. He puts the wood on the altar. He puts the sacrifice on the altar. He digs a trench around it, which may seem weird to everyone else, but Elijah knows what he's doing because he does the craziest thing of all at this point. Everything else is paled in comparison. He calls for water. 
Now, this is crazy for several reasons. One is there has been a drought for three and a half years. No rain. Water is scarce. Water is not something that typically they would have just on hand. And he says, bring in water. And they bring in these jugs, these jars of water. They dump it on the sacrifice. And he says, do it again. He puts so much water on there that to make it clear what's happening, uh, the wood is soaked, the altar is soaked, and the trench is filled with water. I want you to know that Elijah has stacked the deck in favor of the Baal prophets. That's what's being shown here. If there was any doubt who God was, Elijah wants to make it very clear that the playing field is not evil, or is, is not even here. This Baal, they believed, lived on the mountaintop. So in other words, we're going to go to the place of your God. There are 450 of them and their sacrifice is dry. 450 to 1 are the odds. I think those are the same odds that the Cowboys have to win another Super Bowl. I'm not fully sure, though. Is that too low? Sorry. <laughs> Just think about that, though. 1 to 450. All the odds are stacked against him. Everything seems to be like, what does this guy think? But then he prays. He prays, and immediately, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up the water that was in the trench. As if it weren't enough to just, you know, put a lighter to it, the Lord says, let's take it all out. There is no doubt what just happened. Everything this whole contest that Elijah is proposing, this epic showdown proved to be no showdown at all. It was an unfair fight. It's no real contest. Another boxing illustration that, that uh, you might be aware of happened in uh, 1988 in Atlantic City. It was on June 27th. There was a fight that was of considered epic proportion. The build-up into this fight was huge. The two players were two heavyweight champions, uh, Michael Sprinks, sorry, Spinks, I threw an iron there, didn't mean to, and Mike Tyson. Millions of dollars were on the line, thousands of dollars just to get a seat in the place. Everyone was expecting this long, drawn-out battle. Do you know what happened? Right uppercut, the Sphinx sent him on the floor, knocked out. 91 seconds in the first round. Mike Tyson, clear winner. It was like it was no fight at all. Now that's maybe just a tiny little picture of what was going up on Mount Carmel that day. There was no contest. This epic showdown all of a sudden just proved to be weighted towards God. There was absolutely no showdown here. God just proved he's the only one. And the people, the people, whenever they see this, they end up calling out, crying out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
Because they saw it so clearly. They saw it. Elijah then commanded all the people to round up all these false prophets because now they're known as false prophets. Everyone knows that they're false prophets now because their God wouldn't deliver. Our God does. They round them up, they take them to the Kishon Valley, and they slaughter them. There are some hard parts of Scripture to deal with. Uh, but Elijah says, hey, get rid of all of them. So they do. And then Elijah goes back to King Ahab and he says, hey, you better prepare yourself because rain's a coming. There's rain coming. I believe that tie is for a purpose of what's all going on here. Rain is coming back because the people are coming back to God. In other words, the people have returned to God and they're calling back the Lord. He is God. The Lord, He is God. And God's reign is about to happen. You see what I did there, right? Let me, let me repeat it just in case you missed it. The Lord's reign is coming. I love that picture. But everything that's going on there, I want to back up. Because I missed one piece of the story. One piece that I think speaks to our hearts and our situation so clearly. And it's found in the peanut gallery of the story. It's found in the cheap seats, where the spectators are watching this thing going on. As much as I want to focus on Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, what I find most poignant to me is the crowd. Whenever Ahab summons all the Israelites together and the prophets and Elijah, they all gather at Mount Carmel. Elijah takes the opportunity to say this in 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah stood in front of them and says, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. This is before the contest has happened. This is before all of this is going on. And they're looking at Elijah, one guy for the Lord, standing up against actually 850 prophets, 450 from Baal and 400 for Asherah, there for their other gods. And he says, look, you can't have it both ways. Choose one or the other. If, if Baal is God, follow him. But if the Lord is God, follow him. The line is drawn in the sand, and you have the crowds being asked, which side are you going to stand on? You know what they said? But the people were completely silent. They said nothing. I find that a, 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 over and over again what the people do. When presented the options, we say nothing. We do this in our world. We do this in our society. When we see the options, we say nothing. What a sad place to be. And I know it's sad because I've been there, haven't you? I've wanted to ride the fence of both worlds. I've wanted to have one foot that says, I'm following you, Lord. I want your blessing and I want your uh, things to come upon me. I want to praise you, but at the same time, I have my foot in 
another world that's saying, you know what, I'm not so sure he can deliver, so I'm going to wrap my arms around some monetary possessions to make sure that I'm taken care of. I know the Lord says he'll take care of my family, but I also want to help him out. And I want to hold on to and hoard some of the things that I've worked for. Or I want some of the blessings of God. You know, there's a wonderful list of blessings of God, but also I want some of the fun of the rest of this world. And I want to stand in both worlds thinking that that's okay. Have you ever tried to sit on a fence like that? It's not how you sit on a fence. It's uncomfortable. There's a reason you can't ride the fence. It doesn't work like that. And that's what Elijah is saying. He says, you can't just remain silent with one foot in and one foot out. Because to God, he's a jealous God, that means both feet are out. You're either all in or you're all out. You can't have both worlds. And there's plenty of us here that need to remember that, right? We need to remember you can't have both of these worlds. You can't stand with your feet on both things. And so they remain silent. But then something beautiful happens. In their silence, when they're trying to, to waver between the two options, saying, well, you know what, let's see how this show goes, God shows up in a mighty way. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes not only the sacrifice, but the wood and the stones. Just think about that kind of fire. And their silence all of a sudden turns into worship. Their silence is broken because they come out and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They were trying to stand in both worlds, but whenever they saw which one really acted, they jumped on the bandwagon and said, the Lord, he's God. And that is whenever Elijah says, God's reign, it's coming. And it's going to be so much that you need well, as it says, you need to gird up your loins and be ready for this. Because when God's reign comes, look out, world. It's going to do something amazing that everyone will see. I love this story. There's so much about it that I can take home. But the piece that I want to ask you, when the battle is over, the people know clearly who God is. And I guess to ask this question, I want to set it up, that thinking, you, you might be thinking, you know what, if God showed up in that kind of way, if he sent fire from heaven to light an altar on, on just totally gone, and I knew it was clearly from God, you better believe my silence would be turned into worship. I would be praising his name, no doubt. But you're thinking, now, I haven't seen that. What has God got to do to convince you that he is the Lord. You may have asked that question. Lord, just show me this. Show me that. I just want to commend to you, just think about what God has already done for you. We can sing the song, God sent his son. They called him Jesus. His only son, John 3.16 says, was given as a sacrifice for you. They killed God's son and then in an epic showdown of wonderful proportion, Christ showed the world that death cannot hold him. Death has been defeated 
and he proved that he lives still. So I ask you again, what does God need to do to show you his power and that he loves you? Has he not done enough? Or are you still trying to stand on the, each side of this fence, wavering between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But we know the answer to that, don't we? So this morning, I'm going to ask you to stop being a fence rider. I don't know how many weeks have gone by and you've kind of stood on the ground of saying, hey, you know what, I'm just going to see how this plays out. I'm going to see which side wins in this battle. Maybe you have been on the cusp of, of giving your life to Christ and you're just like, ah, I'm just not sure this is the week for it. I want to let you know that you're probably riding the fence and God is calling you to make a call, to get the right side. Join him, the God who answers the prayers. So this morning, if you're in need of coming to the right side of that fence, if you're in need of the prayers that we can help uh, join and uh, praying to God together, or if you're in need of becoming fully his through the waters of baptism, committing your life, we want to be a part of that. Would you come and let us know as we stand and as we sing together?